You're listening to What Book Hooked You, the podcast where we talk about the books that have played an important part in our lives. I'm Brock Shelley, and thanks for listening. In today's episode, I talk to Lamar Giles, who has currently just published his third young adult mystery novel called Overturned, his previous two being the books Fake ID and Endangered. And not only is he a writer, but he's also a founding member in the organization We Need Diverse Books. And we get into that. We also get into his life as a writer and a reader. So take a listen. So, Lamar, what book hooked you? Uh, Well, I would have to say it was Stephen King's It. And... Anyone who knows me or has like seen a previous interview may know that answer. But the thing is, I never really get a chance to elaborate on why and how. Is that something I can get into here? Absolutely. All right. So like I was a kid when I came across this book, maybe 11 years old, which is probably way too young to read Stephen right. King's It. But by that time, I, I was already a really uh, advanced reader. And I was getting sort of tired of the books that were considered age appropriate. But the thing is, I lived in a small town where we didn't have a mall or a bookstore that I can remember. Um, in order to get to a place like that, you had to go to another town. Um, and that's just not something we did often uh, because it was you know, my mom taking me there or whatever. So my choice in getting books was either the library, which was fine. I used it a lot or our local grocery store. And my mom had gotten into this place where she never told me no when I wanted books. And because I wanted to start reading more adult books at the grocery store, the choices were like Danielle Steele or Stephen King. You know what I mean? And and it was a big book at the time because I think that ABC miniseries was about to come out. Mm -hmm. So like that was like one of the first adult books that I asked for. And I don't think my mom even got it for me right away. I think she saved it for my birthday because that was a thing. Um, on birthdays, I got books. And so it became a situation where it was an adult book. I wanted to read more advanced things. It was available in my town. And my mom sort of hooked me up. And so just by being one of the first adult books I read, it's, it became the book that made me want to write. And so, you know, Stephen King, especially it uh... – horror book was that the type of book you were into at that time or was it just the fact that it was you know the shiny adult book uh that got you into it originally well it it turned out to be both and i'm gonna tell you how i didn't really know a lot about stephen king back then but what got me is i was always into supernatural stuff so like even the the age appropriate books i was reading had a, a horror element to it do you remember like the Banicula books, the Celery Stalks at Midnight, that sort of thing. Um, so if you don't remember it, so <laughs> it was it was a crazy book. It was about like um, a vampire bunny who was sucking the life out of vegetables. And it, I don't remember all the details. <laughs> it was a silly kind of thing. Um, but I loved stuff like that. And so I was also into horror movies. And I remember watching this movie called The Monster Squad, which is way, way, way back in the like mid 80s. And one of the kids in the movie, because these were kids who hunted monsters. Yes, I remember this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he wore a shirt that said like either like Stephen King rules or Stephen King fan club. And I'm like, well, 
Stephen King guy must be kind of important. And so when I saw his name on this book in the store, it was sort of all those things connecting. And once I read it, yes, I wanted to write scary-ish books. And that's what I started out doing, actually. And so, you know, you're 10 year, you're 11 years old at this time. Uh, were you interested in writing on your own even at that time? Yeah, um, because um, even a few years before that, I'd won this contest at my school. It was a young authors competition where they got everybody in our grade to write and illustrate their own book. And it it wasn't like high quality stuff, obviously. I, I'm not an artist. It was like these really cheesy crown drawings and you write directly on the construction paper some story you made up. But I really took it seriously because I'd read a lot of books by then. And so just by absorbing so many stories by the time I was in fourth grade, I actually came up with something that's I I felt was original. The judges liked it. And it's an idea where, honestly, I've thought about trying to reproduce it in recent years hmm. as a potential picture book because I think it's that solid. Um, so even before it, I had an interest in storytelling, but that sort of solidified it for me. Um, I always like I always tell people it was like Stephen King was a magician to me because he could take words, put them on the page in a certain order and make me feel physical fear. And that felt like sorcery almost. I'm like, I got to learn how to do that. And so once kind of it introduced you to Stephen King, do you remember what books immediately kind of followed that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, a lot of Stephen King books, because once I discovered it, I realized like, hey, this is a guy who's written a bunch of stuff. So I read a lot of his work right away. But using, utilizing my local library, I asked for people who are like Stephen King and end up getting introduced to um, Dean Koontz. So I read a lot of his work as a teen, um, ended up being introduced to a guy named F. Paul Wilson, who became one of my favorite sort of speculative dark fantasy writers. Um, and that snowballed from there, ended up over my teen years being introduced to um, Tanana Reed Du, Stephen Barnes. Um, that snowballed into my 20s and to Brian Keene. Um, many, many, many horror writers. I, I could probably go on and on naming names, but that was like my primary taste for a long time. And so you, you mentioned how this was likely, uh, it was likely a birthday gift uh, from your mom. So it sounds like your mom uh, was very encouraging uh, to get you to read and to push anything in front of you that you wanted, basically. Absolutely. Um, I, I learned this very early on. Like she'll tell stories, too. She'll say even before I could read, I would point at the spinner rack in the Seven Eleven and ask for Spider-Man comics. And she... She's not like a prolific reader. She might read like a couple of books a year, like whatever is hot that year. But she always felt that reading was a basis that could help me have a, a better life than what she thought she had. She was a factory worker. She did that for 30 plus years. But growing up, she just always told me, like, work on your mind. So maybe when it's your turn to go out in the world and make a living, you can at least have air conditioning. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we would go to stores, and if I asked for toys like all little kids do, that, that was hit or miss. That stuff was usually birthday or Christmas. But mostly when I asked for books, she'd always say yes. And so she was she developed a habit in me early on. And as a kid, I'm like, well, if I can't get the toy, I'm going to at least get something. So I'll get another book and read that. So it worked out well. And then, you know, so you're reading all through high school, uh, getting into various different authors. From that, you know, writing contest... Uh, back in elementary school, how did your writing dreams or pursuits 
kind of grow with you? Sure. Um, in my teen years, I read a lot, but I was sort of getting bitter because I wasn't seeing a lot of people in books who look like me. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a black guy. I just didn't see that. And in the genre I liked, more times than not, if a black guy popped up, he wasn't going to make it long sure. in that particular sure. book. And so it, it became frustrating at a point. And I was just like, well, even though I dabble with the novel starting at age 14, um, I'm like, there's really no path for me here. It doesn't seem like this is a viable option for me. So I'm going to school like I'm going to be like a computer programmer or something like that. Um, but I ended up not going down that path simply because, and, and this isn't something I'm necessarily proud of, I, I wasn't great with math. Mm -hmm. And all those other safe, um, standard careers that people would push me towards, I was terrified because when I look at the curriculum sheet in college, there's all this math, business calculus, something else, something else. And I could barely pass algebra. And it, it's the one subject I always struggle with. And at the same time, I still had a sort of love-hate relationship with words. I still excelled in all my English lit classes. I still like to write. But I'm thinking, like, how in the world am I going to make money and survive? And so by the time I graduated college, I ended up getting, like, a basic office job, cubicle farm, looking at gray felt walls all day. And even though I'm making money and able to pay my rent and keep a roof over my head, I'm like, it's pretty hard getting up and coming to a job that I'm not passionate about on a daily basis. I got to do it. But if I got to do this thing that's hard, this publishing thing is also hard. Why don't I put some energy into that? And so it became a situation where I'm like, I still love words. I still love writing. And by that time, I discovered black authors who were doing the sort of work that I wanted to do. I'm like, I'm going to at least put some energy into this and see where it takes me. And so from the age of like 22 on, I would get up at like five in the morning and write till seven. Go shower, go to my job, get through eight to 10 hours, be exhausted, come home, sleep, do it again. And over the course of a decade, I was able to sell short stories, win some contests. And eventually, by the time I was 31, sell a novel. So in your 20s, when you kind of uh, got back into writing, what were some of those uh, authors that you spoke of that, that started to inspire you? Um, Stephen Barnes, who's a noted science fiction writer. Tanana Reeve Du, who's a noted dark fantasy writer. They actually are married. Um, which is just an interesting coincidence. I discovered them separately and later found out that they were together. Um, there's a guy named Brandon Massey who was a mentor to me in my early 20s. Um, he's from Atlanta, Georgia, and he was getting some buzz for some horror novels that he wrote. And I remember reading an article in this magazine. I think it used to, I think it was called Black Issues Book Review. I don't know if it still exists, but I remember seeing this article naming this guy the Black Stephen King. And so that intrigued me, given where I started my adult reading. And I read some of his stuff, liked it, ended up writing some questions to him in an email. And I'd done this for many writers at this point and never heard anything back. But when I emailed Brandon, he wrote me back like the next day. And we started like a lengthy exchange where I'm just asking him craft questions. And a year or so later, he got a deal to put together an anthology called Dark Dreams, which featured all black horror science fiction fantasy writers he asked me this to try out to submit i did and he ended up getting me my first major publishing credit so like between him to not and stephen barnes they sort of kept me going in those middling years 
And those first short stories that you were writing and get some of them getting published, uh, they were all kind of dark fantasy horror type stories. That's correct. That's correct. Uh, the first story for it, but it's the story I sold to the first anthology was called the track. And it was basically about, um, an evil track and field situation where people in this town would become obsessed with weight loss and fitness and start this cult where they walk around this track every morning. And, um, I don't. I guess I'll spoil the story a little bit. And the twist was, in order to lose weight, they would start sacrificing relatives for quick weight loss. Hmm. Um, and and they liked it. And that got into the anthology. And the next story was um, one of my favorites. It's called Wilson's Pond and Loan. Brandon Brandon did a second anthology that I sold to. And then he ended up doing a third, and I sold a story called Power and Purpose. All of them were sort of in that dark fantasy horror realm. And those are actually the first types of novels that I tried to sell, but unsuccessfully i never could get any traction when it came to long form horror so talk about that what so you started writing these novels in horror and you just weren't finding success so you were you sending them out to agents and just were you getting any response any feedback Mm -hmm. on those yeah i spent several years i probably wrote four or five different novels that would have been classified as horror and i was sending them out to agents i learned about the process and how you needed an agent to submit to a major ad, um, editor or publisher. And I was just getting a hundred percent rejection and, and going through it is sort of like, you know, you had this bitter feeling like they just don't get me. But the truth was those books just weren't that good. I was still learning. I was still developing um, and figuring out exactly how to tell a story with my voice. And though I was, it was right for them to reject. Um, it didn't feel that way at the time. And also I recognized something as I learned more about the business. I started to read young adult books because when I was growing up, that wasn't a term anybody used. Right. But I would say in the early 2000s, it started to pop up more and more. And I was curious. And I ended up picking up a book by Neil Shusterman called Unwind. Book totally blew me away. And in some ways, I felt like Neil was doing something creatively that I wasn't seeing in adult books, which made me want to read more of his work and more young adult authors. And so I started to, you know, my my reading time got split, like half adult books, half young adult books. And then it probably shifted to like 60, 70 percent young adult, 30 percent adult. And so I got to a point where I was like, hey, I think I could work in this realm. I have a couple of ideas that seem more appropriate for this age group than adult. But I also recognized at that time when I was having that revelation the hottest book on the planet was like Twilight. Mm-hmm. That was coming after. That was coming. Out, I guess it was probably a little bit after or right towards the tail end of Harry Potter. And as Twilight was reaching its peak, I think the Hunger Games was starting to rev up. And so, having been around the business long enough, I recognized that anything that sounds like any of these super major books is not going to stand out to any agent. Mm-hmm. They're probably seeing a hundred, two hundred query letters a week that sound like these properties. And I recognized that me writing the sort of horror, dark fantasy stuff I did, even if it wasn't exactly like those books, it was close enough where I was going to have a hard time pitching that. At this very same time, Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve do these authors who inspired me at a young age. They started writing mystery novels and they were good. And I'm like, Hey, Maybe that's something I could try because I enjoyed mysteries too. 
And I got the idea for my first young adult novel, Fake ID, which is about a kid in witness protection who has to solve his best friend's murder. And it just felt solid. I'd grown as a writer. I knew how to construct a story better. And it felt fresh compared to what was hot at the time. And that ended up being the book that got me my agent. And that agent sold that book to HarperCollins. And so that ended up coming out in 2014 as my first YA novel. And so from there, you did you sort of find what I'll say kind of your lane as far as, you know, what you felt comfortable writing and what seemed to get the most positive reception from others? Yeah, to an extent. Um, I've, I'm, I'm definitely, I don't know if I'm the only, but I'm, I'm one of the few black male writers working in young adult mystery. I mean, it's like, I guess that's a, that might be a niche. Right. Um, and the response has definitely been positive for all three of my novels so far. Um, it, it, I think people expect a good thriller from me and that's a joy to have people kind of come at me that way. Um, because fake ID was nominated for an Edgar award in 2015 Endangered was also nominated for Edgar in 2016. Um, Overturn's been getting a ton of great praise. It was reviewed in the New York Times. Um, like people expect a good mystery from me. So it's a lot to live up to, but I'm also grateful for it. At the same time, I eventually want to get back to writing some darker, fantastic things. And I think I'll have the opportunity to in the future. But in the meantime, I'm still going to write the thrillers and the mysteries because I like them and people like them. And I want to be able to to give my readers what they expect. And so you mentioned Overturn. That's your latest release. Give me, give me a brief synopsis of what that's about. Sure. Overturn's about a girl named Nikki Tate who lives in Las Vegas and plays in illegal card games for college tuition. Um, her father's been accused of a crime he didn't commit, and she has to use her underworld resources to sort of figure who framed him for murder. And what sort of be what was the first kind of spark that gave you this idea for this book? Um, poker, and I, I say that I'm not much of I'm not a gambler at all, but I started to learn the game of poker just playing online for fun. And I'm always thinking of interesting traits that I can give to a character, um, particularly since the thrillers have been doing so well. Um, in Fake ID, Nixon witness protection and was raised by criminals. Um, and in danger, Panda's a photographer who sneaks around and takes pictures of the meanest kids in her school. And I was trying to think of my next character. And I'm like, wouldn't it be neat if a character was a poker player? And once I got poker, I'm like, well, well where, what town would they play in? And immediately I thought of Las Vegas. And once Las Vegas came into the fold, it just became the sort of snowball effect. Nikki lives in a casino. Um, she she plays in these illegal games in one of the most famous cities in the world. So it was just a lot of meaty things that I could play with there. And so, what now that you're kind of three books in and you've got, and you've gotten short stories published, what would Lamar now tell that 22 year old Lamar that was waking up at five o'clock in the morning to to squeeze in writing? Oh, um, it's not going to pay off right away. But anything you want in five years, you need to be working on now. And that's advice that I give other young writers when I meet them. I'm like, it's not going to happen right away. And you shouldn't get frustrated when it doesn't. And it's also not going to happen the exact way you think it's going to happen. Because if you had asked me at 22, I was going to be a horror writer. Uh, 
like I said, I, I hope to get back to that someday. But I'm very happy being considered a mystery writer uh, among my peers and among my readers. And do you think, because we started off with uh, talking about it, what do you think you've taken from it and Stephen King? Uh, you said that really inspired the writing that you do. Is it is it only in maybe subject matter, or is there any kind of stylistic craft things that you see that you've that you've carried on from those early days of being a reader? Well, I would say directly from King, and he talks about this in his book on writing. Story propulsion is um, something I live by. Like because of him, I've learned to always keep the story moving. Um, there are times when it's probably to my detriment. I, I, I have to go back and when I revise, there are a lot of times I need to slow things down, which is fine. Writing is rewriting. But I would think the key thing from King is story propulsion and then in revision. First draft minus 10 percent equals second draft. So those are two things that are like scripture for me. Then a question I like to ask YA writers, would your young adult self enjoy reading your books, do you think? Absolutely. Um, and I would say in particular because I write heroes of color. And that's something that I longed for when I was a teen and hardly ever saw. So I'm certain that 15-year-old Lamar would have enjoyed Fake ID, Endangered, and Overturned. So that's a good segue into your involvement with the We Need Diverse Books organization. Now, you're a founding member. How did you and others... Uh, bring this organization about? Well, um, We Need Diverse Books is the brainchild of Ellen O, who's a Korean-American author. She's written some really great fantasy novels. And she and I shared the same editor at HarperCollins when we sold our initial novels. And we also lived relatively close by, so we were always at events together. And back in 2014, we were at an event together, and we had a lunch break. And she said, Lamar, you know, I've been thinking about something can't tell you any details yet, but I want to know if you're in. And that's a that's a weird way to ask somebody to do something. Right. I told him, like, Ellen, as, as long as it's legal, I'm probably in. A couple of weeks later, she gets back to me and she starts saying, hey, I want to just start this sort of hashtag campaign on Twitter. Hashtag we need diverse books. And we're going to tell everybody why we think we need diverse books, because what we found was the story I told about longing to see myself in books is a very common story, particularly particularly among the working authors of color or any marginalized group, whether that's religion, um, sexuality, um, levels of ability. Like everyone wanted to see themselves in books. And growing up, it was always just um, cisgender white protagonists. And so around the time Ellen was putting this plan together and we were sort of seeing where we could help, one of our big industry events, BEA, Book Expo America, was also adding a segment called BookCon, which was supposed to be like the literary world's um, analog to Comic-Con. And when they announced the lineup of their like superstar young adult authors, the most diverse person listed was a cat. <laughs> it was a grumpy cat. Everybody else, again, white, cisgender authors. And so on the back of that announcement, Ellen says, you know, it's time for us to do this. And the hashtag launched. And I think within a week it was trending all over. Um, just all day, every day. 
people are posting their stories. We need diverse books because, and they'd have their picture and they'd have their sign saying, why do we need them? And it, it got so ridiculous. I think by the end of that month, we had something like 150 million internet impressions worldwide. So when that happened, like the industry really couldn't ignore what people were saying. And um, the book con organizers being very gracious about it, they invited a bunch of us to come to New York and, and be on a panel to talk about it. And that panel ended up getting covered by like every major media outlet. Um, I remember being interviewed for NPR, that interviewed by NPR that day, which was amazing. I'm a first time author. My book had only been out a couple of months. And off the strength of the public reaction, we all got together and decided we can't let this die. And we formed a nonprofit. And since then, we put together several programs to help change the face of publishing. We have We Need Diverse Books in the Classroom where we actually donate diverse books to needy classrooms so kids can have books with characters like them, even if they couldn't afford that book on their own normally. We have an internship program where if a publisher or an agent brings in a diverse intern, we'll help supplement their living expenses so they can go to New York for a summer and work for free and potentially go into the publishing industry to help change things from the inside. We have mentorship programs where aspiring authors and illustrators can be paired with a diverse creator to help them gain the skills they need to break into the industry. We have a award now, the Walter Award, where we recognize a stellar diverse book each year. So we're doing all sorts of things to keep attention on diverse books that, frankly, nobody else in publishing was doing until then. So, um, that's the story in a nutshell. I went a little long on that. That was great. And I'd have to think that when you think of your legacy, that um, this is going to be one of your major accomplishments. Uh, have you ever kind of reflected on that? Um, honestly, no. I mean, here's the thing. It's maybe years from now at a distance I can, but I'm still in the midst of it. And there's a lot of day-to-day -day work that goes into keeping We Need Diverse books running. And, not, and it's all volunteer work. Like none of us get a salary or anything like that. Like any money we raise, we're not using that money personally. It goes in the program. So it's like, I'm just consumed with every day staying on top of whatever my task is for the week to keep things running smoothly. It's, it's like I'm too close to it right now, sure. if that makes sense. Sure. And, and are you sort of amazed that you know, it's from that hashtag three years ago till now, how much it's grown and how much, you know, it's become this kind of force. Certainly. I'm certainly at that level. Yes. And because just because of our, our status as a nonprofit now, there are certain things we're required to do. And one of them is our board has to have an annual meeting. And so every year when we have this annual meeting, we sort of have to take a moment and reflect like, hey, we're still here. Most nonprofits fail in two years. And it's amazing that we're able to keep going, that there's continued support, and that I think we're having some change in the industry. Um, it, it definitely, in those moments, it's like, wow. So I feel it then, more so than any other time. I just totally lost my train of thought, because I'm sort <laughs> of, like, I'm amazed by, uh, you know, it was just a hashtag. It was just a hashtag yeah. that Ellen had and shared with you, and then from there, the work that you guys are doing is amazing. Uh, yeah. And so because you have all that work, because you're a founding member, you're deeply involved. Is it hard to kind of juggle that organization, your own writing, your own kind of personal life? 
Yes. <laughs> In a nutshell, yes. It, 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 it can be difficult to juggle everything. Um, in, in my personal life, I'm married. So, I mean, it's, it's the whole thing of like, you know, having time to write, doing We Need Diverse Book stuff, which is like a part-time job that, that none of us get paid for. And, and, and everything else. It, there are moments when it's overwhelming. And I can't say that I haven't dropped the ball a couple of times. Um, I'm on deadline for like a few different things right now. And it's becoming a situation where it's just hard to get my own writing done and keep everything else going. So the, the truth of the matter is, I don't, I don't think this is anything I can't talk about. I'm probably going to step down from my duties mm-hmm. as an executive board member sometime in the near future. Um, just because it's been three years and I think it's time for someone who's probably a little fresher, sure. who's not as fatigued to step in. But um, until then, I'm still on board and I'm doing work to helpfully solidify the future of the organization. But it is definitely hard to to juggle all of it. What's your writing discipline like? Do you have a carved out amount of time each day like you did uh, back in when you were 22? Um, I try to. And I'm not going to lie and say I'm, I'm 100% on target with it. But now because... I don't have a day job anymore. I try to treat writing like a day job as much as possible. And at the very least, I try to work from like eight to noon on writing projects. Afternoon, after I take a lunch break, it can get dicey with emails, business stuff. Um, And that's the thing nobody ever tells you. Like once you start publishing, like a bunch of writing stuff gets in the way that's not writing. And I'm fine with that. I mean, it's part of the job, but I find it's much harder to stay on a consistent writing schedule. And that's probably because I just have too many things going on, like we just mentioned. But I try to to at least do four solid hours a day that's just about writing. If I can get more in, even better. Very good. Now, a few questions sort of as we wrap up. Mm -hmm. What is your favorite movie that's based on a book? Um. Well, this is a novella, but I think it counts. The Shawshank Redemption. Okay. Yep. That would be up there on my list. Yeah, yeah. And so then, what uh, what book, what classic piece of literature do you absolutely can't stand? I'm not going to say I can't stand it, but I've never been able to get through more than a few pages. The Catcher in the Rye. Okay. That That's one that comes up a lot. <laughs> any reason for it at all I, that voice i just can't connect with it okay. and i've tried on many occasions just recently a bookseller friend of mine was saying how it was his favorite book and i'm like okay maybe I'm, I'm older now maybe i have a better attention span let me try it nope nope didn't work and then finally what is the last great book that you've read can i say two sure. can i name two books absolutely all right the hate you give by angie thomas mm-hmm. And Side by Neil Shusterman. Side. And any reason for either one of those? What made them so great? Well, first, I think Angie's book is just probably the most timely and well-executed book I've ever seen in my life. Um, Do you know the premise? I do. I do. Okay, just for anyone who's listening, you know, The Hate You Give is about a young girl who witnesses her unarmed friend getting murdered by a police officer. Obviously, that's something that's been in the news too many times in the last few years. And that book comes along with a perspective that it just blew me away. The voice, the the twist and turns, how relevant it is. It's like I, I can't think of anyone knocking a book out 
at the exact right time with that amount of skill before. Um, you know, it's gotten universal praise, got some like eight star reviews. It's been the number one bestseller for weeks. I think it's down to number three now. But um, and that book just came along and blew everybody away. And an interesting story about it. Angie was one of the first people that We Need Diverse Books gave a grant to. We also offer grants to creators who are trying to do work and may have a need and they apply for it. And she applied for a WNDB grant when she was working on the Hate You Give. She needed the money to purchase a new computer so she could finish that book. Um, so we, we're just so proud of her because we consider her part of the WNDB family. And the success she had has just blown everybody away. Um, as far as size by Neil Shusterman, I mean, I just think Neil is a master of incredible concepts. And the plot of that book is in the far future when humans have sort of developed means where they can pretty much be immortal. The task of deciding who dies becomes sort of officiated by these humans called scythes. So like the tool that the Grim Reaper uses. Mm -hmm. So these anointed individuals who sort of walk around like judges in their robes and things decide who actually gets to die permanently. And it's just, it's such a far out and a well-executed concept. It's the sort of book that makes you wish you'd written it. Well, Lamar, thank you so much for taking the time out and sharing your story with us. And I wish you all the best. Hey, thank you for having me. It was awesome. That does it for another episode. Special thanks to Lamar Giles for joining me. You can check out him at lamargiles.com. Check out any of his books, maybe pick up a few. And also, if you need more information on We Need Diverse Books, you can go to weneeddiversebooks.org. My name is Brock Shelley. Thanks for listening. And until next time, keep reading.